Beloved, please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. And if you would also, just for a moment, open your hymnal to page 960, actually to page 961. I want to point us uh, briefly to two very important questions and answers in the larger catechism dealing with the preaching of God's Word. Page 961, at the bottom of the page, you'll see question 159. Uh, This question is for me and for uh, other preachers uh, who are here uh, today. My friend David McIntosh is here today, a preacher of God's Word. I know there are other preachers uh, in here. This is for us. How is the Word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? They that are called to labor in the ministry of the Word are to preach sound doctrine diligently, in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, faithfully, making known the whole counsel of God, wisely, applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously, with fervent love to God and the souls of His people, sincerely, aiming at His glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation." So that's the exhortation to preachers, but you're not off the hook. Look at the next question. What is required of those that hear the word preached? Answer, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Uh, That's helpful to go back and read over and uh, to consider as you approach the preaching of the Word of God today and every Lord's Day henceforth. But this morning, we are in our 73rd sermon uh, in Romans, Romans 8, verses 18 through 22. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's words. You pray with me. O Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to illumine our hearts and minds as your word is proclaimed. Would you apply these things to us by your Spirit, convict us of our sin, and show us Christ, that we would find our all in all in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last time we were together, we considered verse 18 on its own as a kind of summary verse for uh, the remainder of the chapter. Uh, We considered the, the weightiness of the sufferings of this life, but that it's not even worth comparing with the the weightiness of the glory that uh, will be ours in uh, the next. 
But then Paul goes on uh, to consider the various groanings, as I mentioned last week, the three groanings. He begins with the groaning of creation, the groaning of the Christian, and then finally the groaning of the Holy Spirit as he intercedes for us. And so while we reflect upon this glory which is to come, uh, we realize that there's a lot of groaning going on before Christ comes back. I love the Bible for many, many reasons. But one reason I love the Bible, one reason I love being a Christian, is because we have answers. We have answers to life's most challenging questions. We have answers to why the world is the way it is. We have answers to why there are disasters that take place, like earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and so forth. We have answer, answers for why people are rising up in rebellion and not necessarily throwing off God, but coming up with new gods and new religions. We have answers for all of this. The Bible teaches us about these things. And the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Romans, which is a kind of catechism for the early church, helps us to understand why things are the way they are, why things aren't the way that they should be, and glorying in the fact that one day things will be the way that they should be. Amen? And praise the Lord for that. We have the hope of the gospel. And so I want to give you three headings that I'm going to be unpacking uh, this morning. Number one, the glory of creation before the fall. The glory of creation before the fall. Number two, the subjection and groaning of creation after the fall the subjection and groaning of creation after the fall, and thirdly, the glory of the new creation, the glory of the new creation. And you could also put the word immutable there, the immutable glory of the new creation. So first of all, the glory of creation before the fall. If we're going to understand why Paul brings up creation four different times in these few verses, why he uses the word creation and mentions creation four different times uh, as that which is in bondage and, and under subjection and groaning. We have to understand, first of all, the, the fact that God uh, created the world in six days and called it good. And at one point, it wasn't the way it is now. So we need to look at the beginnings, in order to understand what Paul is saying here. And it's true, isn't it? That God's creation is magnificent. God's creation is magnificent. It's like a, a great and expansive art gallery featuring God's master works and highlighting His divine power and, and wisdom and creativity. My brother and his wife were in Rome this past week, and, and he was sending all these pictures uh, of, of statues and, and artwork in these various museums, and, and there's all the glory of, of the great artworks and masterworks of, of uh, that part of, of the world. But the world itself is God's gallery. From the celestial constellations to the towering mountains to the grand oceans to the myriad species of vegetation and animals, creation is filled with endless wonders. The whole of it ignites our hearts to worship the blessed triune God. It compels the church to sing, This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, 
All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand the wonders wrought. Amen. I sometimes annoy my family by opening windows all over the house all the time, no matter what the weather. Well, not if it's raining. I don't do it then, but, but I'll have the windows open. And part of it is I love to hear the sounds of nature. I love to hear the birds singing in the trees. I love to hear the wind. I love to hear things going on outside in nature. This is our Father's world. Of course, the crown of God's creation is mankind. God made mankind in his own image, male and female, with a rational and a moral soul and imbued humankind with inherent righteousness. That's what makes us different than the animals who do not have souls and do not have a rational soul and are imbued with inherent righteousness. And God didn't only make mankind... He didn't only make mankind, he entered into a covenant relationship with him. Indeed, in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 15 and following, we read, quote, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is what traditionally has been called the covenant of works. It's also been called the covenant of creation or the covenant of life. Obey and live in the fullness of life and fellowship with God in the garden paradise forever and ever, or disobey and invite sin, death, and judgment. That was the covenant that God sovereignly made with Adam and in him with all of us, and in Adam with all of us. Well, then came Eve. God made her and brought her to Adam to be his beloved wife. The two of them lived in the garden paradise together, joyfully tending the garden, delighting in the blessings of marriage, and walking with God in perfect personal obedience in pure happiness. And just imagine for a moment what it must have been like to live in this perfect created order and in perfect blessed communion with God. There was no sin, no idolatry, no suffering, no pain, no tears, no fighting, No anxiety, no violence, no war, and no death, and no fear of death. No, there was only moral perfection, joy, contentment, peace, and happiness in the Lord. There was no bad news. All the headlines in the Garden of Eden Gazette were good. Nothing to make one worry. 
as the first parents of humanity, Adam and Eve possessed a holy love for God and pure love for one another. They enjoyed all the blessings and beauty and gifts of God's world without in any way valuing the gifts above the giver, as we so often do today. All was right and good in God's eyes and in man's eyes. Adam and Eve were truly happy in the Lord. God made us for himself. He knit us together in our mother's wombs to glorify him. That's that's why he made us. It's our end. It's our purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him. And Adam and Eve were glorifying God and enjoying him in the most perfect quintessential way. Things were the way that they were supposed to be. But then something terrible happened. And this leads to the second heading, the subjection and groaning of creation after the fall. Adam sinned against God along with Eve. Our first parents believed Satan's lies over God's word, over his truth, and plunged humanity into perpetual sin and misery. Of course, we've learned all about this in the early chapters of Romans, about this sin and rebellion and misery. And we learn that none of us are immune from it. No, every person, including every person in this room, we are born into this world as an inheritor of Adam's sin. That's why you don't have to teach a toddler to say no or mine. It's just in there, and it comes out. Sin is hereditary. Sin is a spiritual disease passed down to every generation. It poisons mankind's hearts, souls, minds, and affections. And sin has placed mankind under the just condemnation and judgment of God. In his famous uh, 18th century book, Human Nature in its Fourfold State, Thomas Boston says this, quote, The soul, which was made upright in all of its faculties, is now wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, disordered. The heart that was made according to God's own heart is now the reverse of it, a forge of evil imaginations, a sink of inordinate affections, and a storehouse of all impiety, end quote. Paul states in Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's pretty bad what happened at the fall. But that's not all that happened. Creation itself. Creation itself was subjected to futility and corruption. Look at verse 20 with me. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who subjected it? Well, it wasn't Satan, because he would never have subjected the world to futility and bondage in hope. No, it was God who subjected it. 
It was God who purposed that creation would enter into bondage and corruption and futility. Dear ones, let me explain. Please, please hear this. After the fall of mankind into sin, we no longer live in the garden paradise. Surprise, surprise. Write that down and give me credit. We do not live in paradise right now. This much is obvious. Rather, we live amidst the thistles and thorns. We live in a valley of tears. We live in a world where childbirth is exceedingly painful and amidst the lingering reality of corruption and the persistent reality of death. We no longer live in heaven on earth. We live in a context of sin, disease, and brokenness of every kind. Humanity was expelled from the garden paradise and from the favorable presence of God. You see, man rebelled against God, and God, according to his will, made the earth an inhospitable place for fallen mankind. He subjected it to futility. And we learn about this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 24, if you would like to turn there with me. Genesis 3, verses 17 through 24. As you're turning there, I want to mention that as the church is under attack and all of these wicked ideologies are bearing down upon the church and trying to convince us uh, something different about who mankind is and and what we are called uh, to do, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the origins in order to understand our faith. Genesis 3, 17 through 24. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, for his wife, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out in his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, verse 24, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Beloved, we have been living, we have been living since that day, east of Eden, amongst the thistles and thorns. Paradise was lost. Man was expelled from the garden, and God subjected his creation to futility, corruption, and death. Thomas Boston again writes, God set marks of indignation on the earth and defaced its beauty. 
Dear ones, at the fall, spiritual darkness and judgment spread over all the earth, and God subjected the whole creation to bondage, corruption, and futility. This is what the inspired Apostle Paul is teaching us here in our text for this morning. Look with me again at Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is no longer like it was originally made to be or to function. As beautiful and as spectacular and as glorious as certain parts of creation still are, it's nothing like it was or, praise God, what it will one day be. Perhaps you notice that Paul personifies creation in our text to make this point. He states that the whole creation is groaning together. It's not the first time, of course, that God personifies in Scripture the creation. For instance, in Psalm 98, we read, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world uh, and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. This inspired poetry is punctuating the fact that God has made creation for the praise of His own glory. Even the irrational and inanimate parts of creation are ultimately made to give glory to God. That's the end for which God created the world. And so the rivers are described as clapping their hands in the hills, singing for joy. And again, here in our text, the apostle states that the creation has been groaning. Until now, it's been groaning, as it were, since the day that God cursed it. And until this very moment, creation has been groaning since God subjected it to futility and corruption immediately after Adam and Eve fell into sin. Consequently, there is a deep frustration in creation. Why? Because things aren't right. Things aren't right. It doesn't take a theologian or a sociologist to recognize that things aren't right in the world. Nothing is as it should be in the created order. Though some will mistakenly speak of the upheavals of this present age as normal and natural, even Christians. Some people wanting to express words of consolation at a funeral will say something like this. You know, death is just a natural part of life. No, it isn't. Death is quintessentially unnatural. This is why Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Death is unnatural. It's the great invader. It's the result of sin. Death is not natural. It's not a part of God's original created order, nor are the tornadoes that ripped through Mississippi last week or the earthquakes that recently struck Turkey and leveled the ancient city of Antioch. 
nor the floods that rise and the plagues that inflict death on villages and countries. None of this existed before the fall. None of it will exist when Christ returns in glory. Dear ones, creation groans because it is under subjection and in bondage. But it groans, Paul says in verse 20, as in the pain of childbirth. Did you catch that analogy? It groans as if in the pain of childbirth. In other words, creation groans with expectation and hope. This is important for us to understand what's going on here and understand the meanings of these verses. Look at verse 20 again. Paul writes in verse 20, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Those two words, underline them, circle them, highlight them. These two words are massive and are the difference between the rest of the world who does not have hope, and Christians who do have resurrection hope. God's subjecting creation to futility was never the end of the story in God's purpose. No, God subjected the creation in hope, that is, unto a glorious end and restoration. And by the way, God doesn't do hope so hope. I hope one of the underdogs wins the final four. That's a hope-so hope. God does sure hope, certain hope. He subjected the creation in futility in hope because it was a part of His plan to bring about a glorious end and restoration. John Murray comments that creation, quote, was not consigned to this evil condition apart from God's design of ultimate deliverance. And its present state, therefore, is not a finality. Beloved church, the restoration of all things has always been God's design. This has always been His purpose and ultimate end. And so the creation groans as in the pain of childbirth because the pain will be worth it when the end result comes. It will be worth it. No mother will say that the pain and anguish of childbirth was not worth it when she holds her new baby in her arms for the first time. Have you ever heard a mother hold a child and say, this is why I went through so much pain? Really? Oh no. The joyful anticipation of what is coming makes the suffering worth it. And it also makes the suffering seem lighter as we anticipate the weight of that future glory. When Marla and I were living in Scotland, our daughter was born at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. It was quite an experience uh, for many reasons, uh, not least the ward that my wife was put in with six other ladies after the baby was born for a couple of days, resulting in zero sleep. But lots of things to talk about. But uh, in that experience, as Marla was going through the early stages of labor, and we were in our own delivery room at that point, we suddenly heard a woman coming down the hall on a gurney, screaming and crying and yelling and saying all kinds of wild things. Coming down, you could hear her like a motorcycle coming from far away. She said, 
and it came right into the, the, the room next door to us. And she was screaming and crying. And people, you could hear the nurses trying to figure out how to get her under control. And then after about three or four minutes, silence. And then the crying of a baby. It's amazing. All the chaos, all the screaming, all the crying, all the yelling, and then silence. And then the sound of a tiny baby crying. And then the sound of joyful laughter and crying by the mother. Here's the point. The groaning and pain of childbirth has the joy and hope of a child in view. And Paul's point is that creation groans in a similar way with the hope and expectation of something far better, far more glorious and immutably glorious. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, this glory will not change. The frustration of creation comes because in this present time it does not reach its potential or attain its proper ends. Birds and flowers die. Crops get destroyed by pests. Weeds continue to grow in gardens and yards. Thorns and thistles overtake fields. Floods, earthquakes, and tornadoes unleash destruction on towns and cities. But one day, dear ones, these things will not be so. Paul writes in verse 21 of our text, Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God. This leads to the final heading, the glory of the new creation. Dear ones, one day all groaning will cease. All groaning will cease. All of it. One day the groaning of creation will cease. The groaning of believers will cease. The groaning of the Spirit interceding for believers will be no more. One day, one day, please hear this, dear suffering believer. When the trumpet sounds and the Son of Man descends on the clouds, surrounded by a host of angels too numerous to count, the groaning will stop and the praising will begin. God will create a new heavens and a new earth and all that was wrong in the world will be made right and all that was disordered will be restored to its rightful place and function and all that was sad will be removed forever. You troubled Christian, you are going through a hard time. You are perhaps growing discouraged and cynical. In light of all the bad news that you have been hearing, you who are living in fear over the future of this broken world, remember this. There is hope. A sure hope. A certain hope in the gospel. Christ lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial and atoning death. And He rose from the dead to purchase our redemption and to give us new life, to restore us, 
and to restore all things. God's promises are true. Christ will come again and make all things new. He will restore the cosmos and it will be an even more glorious habitation for the children of God than it was for Adam and Eve because there will be no, be no probationary period. There will be no separation from God, no possibility of being thrown out, for we will be united to Christ as we are now, unable to sin, and we will dwell with God in the new heavens and earth forever. Did you hear that? The new heavens and new earth where all things will be as they should be and more glorious than we ever imagined. That is heaven. Isaiah 65 and verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God will be a God to us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. On this great and glorious day, the children of God will be glorified, and the creation will follow. Isn't it amazing? The creation is waiting for the glorification of the sons of God, of the children of God. Because as creation is personified, it knows that when we are glorified, it too shall come into its own. One writer states it this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the children of God coming into their own, end quote. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing the first century Christians in Rome, to encourage them amidst their suffering, amidst the challenges and the oppression of the, the Roman government and authorities, the persecution. He's encouraging them to not lose hope. It's not easy being a Christian, but Paul shows them that there's nothing better than being a Christian, than being united to Christ by grace through faith. And having that sure and certain hope of the forgiveness of sins, of imputed righteousness, and of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth 
with restored communion with God, never again to be separated from Him or even have the possibility of such. For to be thrown out of heaven would also mean that Christ would need to be thrown out of heaven because we are united to Him and we know that is an impossibility. Again, this is why Paul says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right now, one author writes, the entire creation sets up a grand symphony of sighs. But Christ church, one day those sighs, those groanings will cease and never be heard again. This is the hope that we live with by faith. It's the hope that makes our present sufferings lighter and helps us to have patience. John Calvin says, Paul lightens the heaviness of the cross by a comparison with the greatness of glory in order to confirm the minds of the faithful in patience. And so, beloved, I'll leave you with those glorious words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So do not lose heart. Dear Christian, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for your word that helps us to make sense of the world and also to set our hope not upon this world, but upon Christ and his glorious return. We pray that creation wouldn't only be on its tiptoes, but that we too would be on our tiptoes waiting for the return of Christ, joyfully anticipating all things being made new. And may you receive all the glory as we live our lives now by faith and with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.